Welcome to the Aftershock podcast. We chat about cancer, the word you never want to hear. So I'm trusting you, obviously, but realistically, when that anaesthetic goes in my arm, the first I'm going to know about it is when I wake up. The Aftershock podcast speaks to a variety of people that have experienced the ripple effect of a cancer diagnosis. Join us as we explore stories of lost loved ones and speak to those who have lived experience with the disease. I'm Susie Neat. And I'm Kim Landy. And this is the Aftershock Podcast. In our previous episode of the Aftershock Podcast, you heard from Ian, the neurosurgeon who recently operated on George. In this episode, we hear from the patient himself, George, on what it was like to be on the receiving end of a marathon surgery and his road to recovery. So I was diagnosed as having a chordoma in my C2, which is the second vertebrae down in your neck, um, and something that had been there and was chewing away at the bone, um, you know, being a little bit invasive there and causing some harm to, to the C2 and was starting to progress down towards C3. So what were your symptoms to prompt you to go and see a doctor? So my symptoms were, were very mild in the form of headaches. So I had, over a course of three to four days, some very sort of short and sharp pulsing pains, that, you know, three or four seconds sort of stuff in the back of my head. So I'm predominantly on the left side of the back of my head. And you kind of sit there and have a bit of a grimace and squint your eyes and, you know, kind of let it pass and usually just over-the-counter medication, a couple of neurofen. I mean, I encountered these at work. I was having a normal working week and these things would pop along you know, maybe a couple of times a day, um, you know, and give you some discomfort. As I said, I got through my working day. I didn't find the need to lie down or do anything really other than just sort of sit there and, and get through that little moment. But, but that persisted for three or four days. And um, I kind of felt at that point it was worth checking out. So my my profile and my age and, and our family history, we have some incidences of, of cancer and things with my parents. Um, kind of felt like, and I'm, I'm getting close to 50, which is when we start having a lot of these, you know, medical checks naturally anyway. So I felt it was worth checking out. Um, and in this instance, actually being a little bit more bullish with my GP when I did visit him, because the symptoms that I'm presenting with, I have a headache that goes away very quickly and I'm able to manage it with, with you know, basic painkillers. He's kind of just shrugging his shoulders and said, well, you know, especially considering it took me a week to get an appointment with him. So at the end of that week, the headaches had actually gone. So I was sort of there for three or four days, and then a week later I'm sitting there saying, there's actually nothing wrong with me, but last week this happened. So he kind of convinced, or I think I probably convinced him, I won't say, you know, he didn't need to be pushed too hard to send me away for some for some scans around the neck and um, around the brain area because, you know, dad, my dad um, eventually what got him, even though he had several challenges with cancer with brain tumors. And mm-hmm. my mum's primary was, was bowel cancer, but we, we lost her in the second because we were also brain tumors. So there's, um, you know, funny what it does to your psychology. You start to think that you're feeling things that may not be there. So I just wanted some reassurance. The, oh, his yeah. diagnosis was that I had some, probably some, you know, a little bit of deterioration in the, in the discs, which was, again, um, something I got used to hearing, not uncommon in a man of my age. So um, we, we were not looking for that. I think it's just so good that you persisted and um, I've definitely had similar feelings of once you start hearing about more cancer stories, any kind of ache or pain, I'm like, well, it could be cancer. Um, And more often than not, it isn't, but it definitely plays on my mind. Who diagnosed you? Was it an an oncologist? When I had the scans on the day, 
um, the oncologist, so sorry, the radiographer, sorry, that was there on the day, had said to me, um, you know, at the conclusion of the scans, he, he sort of just sort of nudged as I was walking out of the room and said, oh, I don't suppose you've got an appointment book with your GP? And I said, well, no. And he said, well, you probably should consider doing that. And I asked him, Mr. Susan, something, what's up? And he says, oh, nothing, but you should get an appointment with your GP. So kind of at that point, you know something's up. Um, but it wasn't probably more than two hours later when my GP rang me and said that they'd found they'd found the mass. Um, so this is, we're talking Wednesday was scans. Wednesday morning was talking to GP. By Friday, I was in with a neurosurgeon who'd, um, you know, who'd looked at the scans and, and probably came to the conclusion that it was a chordoma rather than a, and a you know, while it's a, I guess it was, it's something, the language I've been very careful with. So, you know, I was taught by the medical professionals, it's not a cancer in the form that it's a, a contained thing, a contained mass, a contained tumour. So his view was that's probably what it was, but obviously couldn't be certain without more tests and, um, and this and that and the other. So while you're hearing the words cancer and you're hearing the words tumour and you're hearing this and hearing that, it's, you know, I really didn't know what it was and what they could do about it, only that I had this thing. And the, the first surgeon that I went to see wasn't really, he felt it wasn't his area of expertise and he referred me away and referred me to Ian, who's obviously the surgeon who ended up treating me. So even at that point, at the conclusion of the first consultation, I was probably no wiser about what this thing was and how it got there and what we could do about it. What went through your mind when you were diagnosed? Um, probably the, the range of emotions of the worst case to the best case to, um, you know, do you, you, your first thing is dealing with your mortality and wanting to understand whether this is terminal and how it's going to affect you and, and what can be done about it. You know, the, the many questions that come with that, the emotional feelings that come with, you know, again, you know, all of a sudden instead of just the basic things you do, I, I used to sleep on my stomach and then I got diagnosed and then I used to sleep in a very straight line on my back with my neck because I didn't want this thing to, to get aggravated. And, you know, again, my sort of my silly mentality was it now, it now knows that I know it's there. So I've got to make sure that it doesn't suddenly realise that we're, we're onto it and we're going to do something about it and start finding its way around other parts of my body. And I'm a, you know, just by profession and by nature, you, you make decisions based on information. I had no information, so I really didn't know what to feel. I was, I was a little bit, a little bit scared, obviously, but it was I was scared of the unknown. I was scared of what they were going to tell me was going to happen, um, and what the possible, you know, ramifications of this thing being there were. Whether it was death, whether it was disabled, you know, what, what, what was it actually going to be? What was I going to hear when I first actually sat down to speak with the surgeon who was going to treat me? Was your wife with you? No. So I tried to play a little bit of a protective card because I wanted to find out a little bit more before I brought the news back to, to my household and to my family. And I, I didn't keep her out of the loop for very long, but certainly when I went to that first consultation, I thought, right, I better find out a little bit about what's going on here and what this journey is going to look like. And then I'll get my support network in. In fact, I didn't. I didn't really tell her until I had my first discussion with Ian. I, I kind of went through some some tests and some scans first, and again, just tried to tried to get it into a position where I could actually go and speak to to my wife and my family about what was going on and what it meant. Because otherwise, there's two people that are having sleepless nights in the bed, and it really wasn't sort of for the case of months, it was about a week, you know, that yeah. it was going to take to sort of to speak to people. So, uh, you know, was it the right decision? I don't know. I think it was. I think at that point, you know, sort of stressing 
everybody out or stressing my family, my wife in particular in this case, out wouldn't have helped get us answers to what was going to happen. I think it's just such an individual choice and such a family-by-family basis. How did you explain it to your kids? I actually did ask some, because it's not obviously something I have a lot of experience with, but I I asked, in fact, some some medical professionals that I knew and, and people, and even with the surgeons that were involved, about how to break it to them and and you know how to how to keep it at a level that they can process without scaring the hell out of them because my my kids are, are teenagers they're sort of 16 and 15 years old so old enough to understand but maybe not totally understand so it, it, you know what they suggested to me was to be reasonably factual not unemotive about it obviously talk about the potential consequences of the surgery and what it was going to look like and um, and I didn't tell them until much, much later. I, I told my wife, in, you know, um, in a week. I didn't tell my kids until probably the week before I went in the hospital, which was a good two months prior. Wow. Because, I, you know, we managed to – there were some procedures I had to have, day procedures and things, but I just kind of wanted them to feel as normal as possible for as long as possible and then give them the news. And so it was literally after dinner we, we kind of sat down um, as I was, as I said earlier, I was very careful with my language. When I said tumour, I made the point of saying not cancer. Um, they had those experiences with their grandparents um, and even with their mum. You know, it was a, kind of an amazing week that we had when my mum was diagnosed in the same week my wife was actually diagnosed with breast cancer. So you had put a double shock there. And so they would lived through that journey with their mum when they were much younger, five years ago, where, you know, they had to see mum have chemo and, you know, lose her hair and, Um, radiotherapy and ultimately the surgery and seeing their mum, you know, in hospital again. So it it was very important to sort of explain it's not cancer in this sense, it's something else. But, you know, I'm going to be in hospital for five or six weeks. I'm going to come out looking like this. I'm going to have scars here. I'm going to have cuts there. I'm going to have some uh, lack of mobility there. But ultimately, this journey is about me living and going back to being normal. It's not about trying to buy myself some time. And, you know, it kind of worked out that, you know, just telling them to come and visit and for the first two weeks I, they um, they put a breathing tube in during the second procedure because just the amount of time I was under anaesthetic. Explaining them that for two weeks it was literally going to be gestures and notes because I couldn't speak. Yeah. So it was then having that debate with, with my wife, Alison, about, well, what's the right time for the kids to see you like that without getting a shock? Um, you know, to be able to... To, to sort of just understand you're actually getting this is part of getting better so we let them ask questions um you know maybe having them home, at home from school at that time as well helped because you could kind of judge their reactions and stuff yeah. um and you know let them come to you with questions because obviously it's just a big information overload on them as it is on you so if you don't expect to just blurt that out over the dinner table and suddenly they start firing questions they did ask the obvious ones, was, you know, well, what's the impact to you, Dad? What's going to happen? And, and you know, as, as factually and as calmly as you can, you explain this to them. And then what you ironically cross your fingers for is that they actually behave like teenagers and it goes through one ear and out the other and they just go back to being on. And, you know, it's just this thing like, you know, I think by one point my daughter said to me, it was at times it was like you were on a business trip. Right. And, you know, that part of it is 
careful what you wish for because you're kind of like, great, so she's, she's not stressed, you're feeling like it's okay. And then the other part of you going, business trip, you for real? You know, <laughs> <laughs> for the last Thank few weeks, you've know, yeah. gone painting around the world and, you know, seeing sights and whatever else. But, again, that's I'm, I'm happy that that's what they were. If they were calm enough to feel that way, that's great. That's, that's what I wanted. You spoke about sourcing information before you told your family um, about yep. your diagnosis. How did you go about doing it? Was it was it through meeting Ian or was it sort of through your own um, research online? No, so I, I quite deliberately stayed away from Google for obvious reasons. The misinformation that exists on the internet and equally when I first met with Ian, um, in fact, even when I first met with the first neurosurgeon, um, James, the rarity of the, the type of tumour that this was and the rarity of where it was kind of meant there probably wasn't a lot of decent information out there anyway. Yeah. And I wanted to get my information from the people that would be treating me. So I had um, quite a team of surgeons. So I, I obviously had Ian as the chief neurosurgeon and, and there's another chap named Carlos Chung who was a, a neurosurgeon who was involved in some of the early works and Ben Dixon who was the ENT and then Edmund Deck who was the plastic surgeon and Marcus Tan who was the physician they're the people I met. God knows how many other people were in the theatre with them helping that I never met. I, I, sorry, I did meet four anaesthetists that were working in shifts as well. Um, but I got my information from from that team because they're they're the professionals. They're you know very clever people and they're very skilled in what they do, and will be able to give me the um, the information I needed. Now, what I learned, as you do, is that. Getting 80% of the information out is actually really easy. They'll give it to you. They'll explain to you what's going to happen, where you need to be, what's going to happen, you know, where the incisions will be and all that sort of stuff. The last 20% is kind of your questions because it's that little piece of information that you want. And teasing that out was probably two or three consultations. You know, what does it mean? You know, or you might have trouble swallowing. What does it? What, what do you actually mean by that? You know, what do you mean I will never be able to chew a, a steak again or are we talking about some slight discomfort and swelling? And and even, you know, when, when you pick up words or the way they explain things to you, sometimes they don't actually sink in until the next meeting and then you ask more questions. questions. It's a very overwhelming it's huge once I mean like I said we've spoken to Ian it's a huge operation but if we go back a step before you met all the surgeons how did Ian talk you through the surgery and the the, the plan essentially um so at the time so, so Ian, was, Ian was great about sort of confirming the facts of, of what it was and where it was um and you know, and, you know, with, again, with, with a real sense of sort of, um, of kindness and care, we didn't just sort of go, well, you know, turns out you got this. He was obviously very careful and, you know, as most people are, they're apologetic about having to be the one that shares the news with you. Um, but we, we talked about what could happen. But at that stage, as I said, because this is such a, an uncommon procedure, it was a little bit speculative. It was like, well, this is more than likely what's going to happen. Um, you know, option one is a full full removal. We, we go in and we get this sucker out and, um, you know, you you know you go on, you go on your merry way. Or we might have to scrape it or do something else or 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 and or. So there was, there was the options. And so, in fact, so for me, there was the takeaway of having to understand what those options were, what they would mean. And then there was actually Ian in parallel going off and doing research with people in Canada who'd performed these procedures or, you know, as close to as possible as having performed these procedures to understand what they went through and, and what the right processes might be so that when next time we met, it started to take shape. 
it started to mean that we understood that it really was plan A and plan B. Well, plan C wasn't an option. Plan C was leave it there because mm-hmm. it ultimately would have attacked my spinal cord at some point, which would have meant, you know, death, quadriplegia, any number of other very unsavory outcomes. The, the less invasive procedure to, to kind of, you know, scrape away meant this thing would grow back. So you'd be in the same position five years older, five years wearier, who knows, maybe sooner. And then there was the plan A, which is we think we can get this thing out. Um, and the way that they've done it overseas is like this, this, and this, and this is what it involves. And, you know, again, not to sort of say too much about the procedures and contradict what Ian said because he did it, and I'm just trying to recall what we talked about. It was, you know, it, it, so we kind of – it evolved. Even from day the day one to, to later consultations, what initially the surgical plan was going to be to what actually happened changed because of information gathering and – different discussions that, that Ian was having with, you know, Skyping or talking to people over in Canada where they performed more of these procedures. I'm sorry, and there was a, sorry, a surgeon in Sydney who performed one of these procedures, but it was on a slightly a slightly different situation there for, you know, using prosthetics and other things and, and whatever else. So, yeah. You had a number of different options um, and each of those options had different risks. How did you balance up the risks and talk through them with Ian? I guess I was recently reading some of Atul Gawande's books, um, Better, and and kind of that's how sl- things are slanting towards um, the quality of life decisions and not quality of life being necessarily the longest life. So I kind of walked away and thought about life goals for me and, and what was really important to me. And, and if it meant that, um, you know, in some way capacity um, – you know, let's say something like quadriplegia, I'm an active person, you know, if that was going to be a really significant risk, then it was something I needed to weigh up and say, am I prepared to actually take this surgery on if there's a 50% chance that at the end of it I might be I might be in that circumstance? I may have taken a different view. So for me, I kind of sat that, you know, sat down and had a really good think about what I could and couldn't live with or what I wasn't prepared to make my family live with and came down on the conclusion, obviously, you know, obviously I want to see my kids grow up, I want to see, you know, I want to retire, I want to do lots of things, I want to travel, I want to, you know, I, I want, I want, I want. Um, and when I kind of had the discussion with, with Ian around the the very aggressive um, approach of removing this thing, it turned out that a lot of that would meet my goals. Um, the risks were there, but they weren't, you know, very, very high risk. They were, obviously, there's always risk of surgery, but, you know, everyone's got their eyes wide open about that. But we, we talked through, you know, the possibility of, of, of death during the procedure. That's a risk, you know, there's a lot of sensitive arteries in there. We talked about, um, you know, potentially the inability to get this thing out, what that would mean. We talked about, um, you know, what could go wrong, strokes, et cetera, all the, all the medical risks that will be presented before you. Um, but I kind of felt for me that um, at an age I was at, physically the condition I was in, the outcomes that were more likely than not with going through this aggressive you know, removal procedure actually fit better for me than 
going and getting a scrape or whatever would happen and then be dealing with this thing again. So it was this was this was a cure. This actually meant that the thing would be gone. Um, you know, potentially some some radiotherapy afterwards, just as a bit of insurance. Um, not potentially, I'm having it. I'm having radiotherapy at the moment. Um, so to me, that kind of went okay. You know, let's do the old go big or go home here. Let's have a go at getting rid of this thing. And if it turns out we can't, uh, or, or you can't, or there's some complications during the procedure, then then we'll deal with that when we have to. But for now, if you can tell me that um, I'll be living a normal life if this if the surgery is successful, well, let's go for it. We spoke to Ian a lot about the fact that it was one of the first surgeries of its type that he'd ever done. How did you feel knowing it was the second surgery performed in the Southern Hemisphere? It was It was one of those um, situations of being rare that you don't want to be the rare person. You don't want to be special in that circumstance. But I suppose what put me at ease is what Ian was explaining. It's not that any each individual part had never been done before. It had just never been done as a sequence before. It had never been done this way before. So I kind of thought, well, that's that's good. Okay, that's great. I think we're, we're kind of blessed in, in Melbourne to have access to some amazing um, medical practitioners and, and experts. And I felt pretty comfortable um, with Ian that he was capable of it. And in fact, I asked him very directly whether he thought he could do this or not. Um, you know, and not and not sort of, uh, oh, I think I can, but with a degree of confidence. And, you know, I'm not going to put a person in a position you just can't say you need to be 100% or I'm not going for it. But if you reckon you can, if you think you can do this and you can do this successfully, then I'm comfortable to let you perform this, this surgery on me because what you're going to give me back in return is, is incredibly valuable to me. You spoke earlier about your medical team. Um, yeah. And it's, I think that's such a good point and the way Ian frames it up with you knowing that it might not have been done um, as a whole procedure before, but the individual um, components. I know um, when he was explaining it to me and Kim, I just didn't realise the, the whole team that was involved and the different surgeons and how much their teamwork would have just been so important. To what degree did you get to know the other, the other surgeons and the role that they would play? Um, I got to know... So the, the surgeons that I that were performing the second, because Car- Carlos, um, the, the neurosurgeon initially, he was responsible for performing an angiogram because of what they had to test is a sacrificial artery that I had in, in my neck that as part of this procedure would be removed. So they had to test whether I would function, whether my brain could function without this artery. So we had a procedure with him and then he actually called this thing and locked it off. So at that point it was gone, it was sacrificed. So he was involved early on. And then the others that I mentioned, so Ben, um, Ben Dixon, who did the ENT. So you, in your initial consultations, I got to asking and you know asking about their role in it and what they would be doing, and then probably afterwards when you're a little bit more, I suppose you you know a little bit more what's the word probably. Um, curious or you know not so much about sort of because you've now survived it now you want to know what they happened the intricacies of it rather than okay you think you can do this great get on with it so um so ben you know understanding that his his role was to give access and then edin's role was to do the graft in my leg to remove my fibula and then um, do some reconstructive work after they'd removed it um, Marcus is my physician, you know, to make sure, as he eloquently quoted it to me, to make sure that I wake up because I actually asked him because I was so many people, I didn't actually know, understand what everybody's role was by title of their, their medical profession. 
you know, the, the, again, the anaesthetist explaining to me they'd be working in shifts because they just weren't used to working for eight-hour periods at a time or more, so they have to kind of tag in and tag out. Um, and, you know, and even in one of the candid discussions I did have with Ian after the fact and with and with Ben, you know, them explaining that the, um, the access was to the point where there was a point in the procedure where Ben was on one side of my neck and Ian was on the other side of my neck and they could actually see each other through my neck. And they needed to because they needed to be able to create that sort of space. So as much as I, I asked, because I wasn't particularly squeamish about it, um, you know, explaining they're moving blocks of nerves and blocks of arteries to create space and Edmund was going to be chopping away at my leg and them explaining again that the, the order of the procedure and the fact that, so like day one, day one of the procedure I was on my stomach because that's when Ian was doing the, the, the bulk of the work and, and he was, you know, working on the back of my head and then he'd be placing in screws and braces but not tightening them up because he had to be able to manipulate my neck to get this thing out. Sorry if I'm, tell me if I'm making you squeamish, sorry. I'm so um, squeamish, but it's so fascinating. <laughs> it yeah. is so fascinating. <laughs> I, I recall when I was admitted on the on the Sunday waiting the procedure um, and Ian came to visit and, and he kind of, you know, we got chatting and about what was going to happen the next few days and, and he sort of, you know, he asked me as well. He says, look, are you, you know, are you okay with what's going to happen? And he sort of said, look, at this point, I've put my, my faith in you. I've put my faith in the team. I've put my faith in, in this, this process and we've prepared as well as we can. And, you know, ultimately, I, you know, kind of said to him quite unquote, I said, look, I, I reckon at the end of the day I'm pretty good at my job and I've got a pretty good feeling that you're very good at your job too. So as of now... It's actually out of my hands. It's in your hands. So I'm trusting you, obviously, but realistically, when that anaesthetic goes in my arm, the first I'm going to know about it is when I wake up. And that's it, really, for me. It's not going to be a case of you giving me updates. It's going to be keeping my family informed. They're going to be the ones on tenderbooks. They're going to be the ones stressed. I'm just going to be out cold. Um, because we did discuss, there's no, there was really no point in the procedures between Monday and Wednesday, me being woken up because I'd just be uncomfortable and in pain. So we, we agreed that I'd just stay under anesthetic until so how long? How long were you under anesthetic for? Uh, till Friday, apparently. Oh, my God. What, what was it like waking up? Um, that's probably the part where I wasn't at my finest. And, and what I mean by that is that I had some pretty pretty wild hallucinations while I was coming out of it. Um, I'm not sure if I shared anything about that, but um, okay. So what you can conjure up in your mind, um, I think it's well documented medically that you know a lot of people do go through a bit of a, a bit of a, a sort of a silly phase in in ICU just because you do, just because it's the nature of the place. Um, but you know, I kind of went through a, a pretty crazy phase in my mind about what was going on around me, and um, in that sort of probably dominated the first week. And it's not surprising with the amount of anaesthetic I'd had through my system and the pain relief and things that they were, they were giving me. It's not surprising. But, you know, to me it was the extent of, um, you know, my, my sister turning up and, and being at reception and demanding to be seen or, or you know, seeing, alleging that that wasn't me, you know, that it was somebody else and there'd been a, a major calamity during surgery. Um, you know, also all, all sorts of really peculiar things and writing, you know, and I'd, again, I was writing left-handed. I'm right-handed, but I was writing left-handed, which I could do to, to, to the nurses. And, again, I probably thought I was writing some really, you know, wonderful Hemingway-style quotes in there. 
and you just love to see some of the nonsense that you wrote at the time under those circumstances. So, and why, why to me it was an uncomfortable time, which was probably the one time I actually felt that the system was working against me, that perhaps these people in this medical profession were actually not out to help me. They were actually out to harm me. Mm. And they weren't. Of course they weren't. It was all in my head. Um, but, but, yeah, that was kind of, I think, two to three days of, of feeling very vulnerable um, and at that point, with we've, you know, we've done really well, not mentioning COVID a lot, but that COVID meant no one could visit. So what felt to me like was, you know, my sister being denied access, my wife unable to visit, the, you know, the doctors closing in around me, you know, the system out to sort of to be destructive was, was really, really difficult, really difficult. So what does treatment look like for you today? So I'm currently halfway through a course of radiotherapy. So Ian's words, of course, is, is um, it's all well and good to take out the weeds, but there's nothing wrong with a spray of Roundup on the way out. So mm-hmm. I'm having a spray of Roundup at the moment. And, and then after that, it'll turn into periodic scans and visits and, and checkups. But there's no, there's no real reason for me to be having or seeing any, any of the other surgeons. I don't need to be seeing the ENT surgeons and, and mm-hmm. anyone else. Again, it's really, I mean, will be my point of contact to make sure that the the rods and screws and things that were supporting my neck are still okay and, you know, that there's no sign of this thing growing anywhere else or, or causing me any problems anywhere else. Um, look, the, for, the, for them, and they were, they were great for me, they were, particularly Ian, who, who was the primary, was able to sort of give you that confidence and say, you know what, you're recovering a hell of a lot better than what we thought. I'm sure they say that to all the patients, but still, you know, to actually hear it is, is quite boring for you. And, you know, even I think four weeks, four weeks or so into my hospital stay, you know, I had a frame. I could probably walk two metres yeah. as far as I could get. So, and sort of, you know, watching, sort of thinking back to three months ago, which is what that was, and now what you can do and how quickly you've recovered again is, is, is just, it is amazing. So I'm sort of out walking eight or nine kilometres a day now and it's not a problem for me. Wow. Yeah. What was it like seeing Ian when you first woke up? Um, initially under my hallucinogenic state, not great. Um, but, no, it was... Didn't take long for it to to realise he was he's a person who cared. I mean, you know, the, the concern on on his face was actually evident, really evident that he was worried for me as a person as much as he was a patient. Yeah. So it was great because it always was quite a scene. There's a couple of times that they came in, um, that he managed to, to to sort of come in and I'd missed him because I was asleep or something, and I was very disappointed. You know, always wanted always wanted to catch him. That's my wife, Alison, in the background, by the way. Hi, Alison. <laughs> um, was there anything you weren't prepared for with your recovery or in, in the whole journey even? Yeah, I mean, you can't, you can't say, yes, you're prepared for everything. I think I probably um, struggled the most with, well, I mean, there's a, a five-week stay in hospital means you've got to check some dignity at the door. You know, you, you might know that, but you can't be prepared for that. And, you know, the, the lovely people that help you and, and do things for you that otherwise you do for yourself is, you know, it's a credit to them that they do it in such a way that you don't feel too ashamed. But it is a, it is a very difficult thing, particularly when you're, you know, you're an independent person two weeks before that and then suddenly, you know, you, you're very, very reliant on other people. Um, and probably that the, the lack of independence um, when I got out, and it's not, you know, it's not to say I won't accept help. I mean, you, know, you need help, you ask for help, you get help. But how much help it was going to take and, um, 
and even probably the amount of time it took me to get back in normal sleeping patterns was was extraordinary. Probably took you know eight nine weeks before I could actually get a decent night's sleep, just because of the the drugs and and the, the being in the hospital and um, things like that. So that that I wasn't prepared for. Um, the only other thing I probably wasn't prepared for was. When I was in there, um, I had a, a feeding tube in my nose because um, I couldn't eat, obviously, because of my throat. So one night, um, that thing blocked, and I ended up sort of waking up, um, realising that some of the stuff had caught in my throat and actually couldn't breathe particularly well and scared the crap out of me. So, so I sort of woke up, and, and then being in a position where you, you can't talk, because I couldn't talk for me, even though I could talk at that point, I had to have a speech valve in. So I didn't have my speech valve in. I'm trying to get the attention of the nursing staff banging on a, on a table, trying to say, you know, I'm struggling here and I can't breathe. Um, and, okay, so two or three violent coughs cleared it and I was able to, to then breathe okay. But when you hear your room number called in the code blue, that will scare the hell out of you. Oh, wow, yeah. So, you know, and even though it was probably... A little bit unnecessary, and you know, maybe if I had waited two or three minutes, I would have, I would have cleared it myself, but I couldn't, and I was struggling to breathe. So I'm glad they did. Yeah. But yeah, when you, so when you hear your in your room in that circumstance, and then there's again, there's a, an incredible quick response from, from nurses. How quick staff, is it? Um, and there they are with all the machinery, and and you, again, great, fantastic, love the response. It's great to feel safe like that, but it is incredibly scary. And, um, again, you know, they asked me at the end of it, it was, I think it was about sort of 10 or 11 at night when this happened, you know, do you want us to give you a life call? And I said, absolutely not. Um, yeah. Because, again, there's, I'm in that mindset again, well, what's she going to do with the information? I'm okay. It was a scare. Um, but, you know, it's, it's only going to stress that. It's just your attitude. You can't come and see me anyway. Yeah. So, so what, we, um, what we agreed with some interesting language in between was, Turn the, machine, turn the feeding machine off and as of the next day, get rid of the feeding tube. I think it's such an important thing you just spoke about, about checking in your dignity at the door. It's not something that's really spoken often about, um, which is why I think talking about it in this kind of format is really important. We absolutely saw it with mum. She had two pretty big stays at hospitals and she was a very independent person she liked to shower when she wanted to shower and blow dry her hair and put her best makeup and um, clothes on. Um, and it was, it was really hard for her. And that doesn't sound in the scheme of things like a big deal, but when it's a daily, multiple times a day, when you've got people looking after you, getting you to the toilet, all of that stuff, it takes a huge mental toll and it took a, it took an enormous mental toll on her. Yeah, it does. It certainly does. And in particular with, with ICU, when there is no bathroom, you've got to either sort of summon someone to bring you a bedpan and then manoeuvre you onto it. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's, it, it is tough. And even like, you know, it was one of my milestones was have a shower. Yeah. You know, the ability to have a shower and, and get in there. And I finally got in there and I finally got on the chair and, you know, you've got a little shower head that you manoeuvre over you and try and position yourself so you get under it. And I was devastated because the nurse said, oh, you know, don't stay under there too long because it could really affect your blood pressure. And I thought, oh, I've been hanging out for this. I just want to sit under there. Yeah, enjoy it. it. <laughs> enjoy it. You know, it's, yeah, a real yeah. moment. it's a real moment of peace and quiet. And, you know, for me at home is to just have a shower, put a bit of music on and have a 15-minute checkout while you're um, you know, wasting a bit of water there. Yeah. So, yeah, it was. It was um, 
you know, as I said, it, it handled brilliantly. You're not made to feel like it, but no. yeah, to have to ask for help every time you need to do something really basic, even get a glass of water, is is um, you know, you just you just have to do it. It's unfortunate, but you have to do it. Is there anything else you'd want to want to say? You want to get across? You want to cover? I tell you, there's a, there's a scary phone call that you make um, to your, your health insurer, to your provider, when you're having a procedure that not many people have had. Yeah, I can imagine. So, you know, it's not – you never want to make this about money because, you know, money's you know, really important when it comes to your health. But it can certainly change um, some of your lifestyle. And I was, you know, very concerned that when I rang that we'd be suddenly in a position where we'd make some changes. Now, we're, again, very, very lucky, lucky in the sense that um, financially it wasn't a burden on us. We were able to, to get through it. And, you know, and kudos to my employer, Capital Group, who um, supported me through through the entire thing financially as well. So they didn't have to. I'd only been working for them for, for six months at the time. Yeah. So, you know, you kind of look at that in context. And so I took a leap of faith and took a new job um, in the middle of a, of a COVID pandemic. And, and for them to, to actually treat you like a person and look after you the way they did was, was fantastic. So, again, another reason why I was able to be at ease is that it just yeah. felt like everything around me was, was in control. Um, but, yeah, I did have to ring and say, okay, there's there's a series of codes I need to quote to you. Are you going to cover me? The answer predominantly was yes. So that was great. So that was a relief. Um, for the people who, who come to you and, and try and comfort and reassure you and with good intentions, um, for those people that come along and say that, you know, these things happen to people with the strength to cope, I say be at least an arm's length away from me when you say it. Agreed. <laughs> Because, you know, we, we've had enough, as most families have had, enough trauma and problems that we don't need any more. And no one needs to, no one chooses to have this. It doesn't matter whether you're, you know, a strong-minded individual and you can cope with it or not. Um, so just be, you know, people want to be supportive and, and that's great. But break out the cliches of, you know, whatever I can do for you and, you know, you'll be right and you'll get through this and all that stuff. You know what, just sit and have a chat about nothing to do with the procedure. I think it's yeah. actually more beneficial. Take someone's mind away from where they're going rather than, you know, you, we've got your back and everything will be fine. Um, you know, that's that's the reassurance we need to build. Um, telling me I'm going to be okay is not going to make me feel okay. Oh, I, I couldn't agree more and I'm so glad you brought that up. I used to, I'd bite my tongue and I still do. People say it in terms of grief, but oh, some of the things mum used to really get to her and to a point she um, she didn't want certain visitors in hospital, even though it was pre-COVID and it was allowed. She's like, I just can't handle yeah. the comments anymore. We all kind of try and be strong for each other and pretend like there's nothing wrong, but there's actually moments of vulnerability when it's just best to just let it out. Thank you so much to George for reliving your experience with us. What you've been through would have been overwhelming and isolating at the best of times, let alone during COVID. By sharing your story, we know you'll be reaching other people who have endured something similar and will find comfort in knowing that they are not alone. Until next time, I'm Susie Nee. And I'm Kim Landy. And this has been the Aftershock Podcast.